everyone, and welcome back to the Kill the Messenger podcast for episode six. My name is Dave Crodan, and this is a surfing podcast. Very special guest today in Steve Sherman, a man who has dedicated his existence to the pursuit of the divine and lives today as one of the preeminent artists covering other artists for a living, whether they be surfers, skaters, or musicians. As always, we appreciate your feedback. You can find me on Instagram at Dave Prodan. And first, we will get to the news. Slightly different news format today. We're going to be going through the top five news hits from the last two weeks with my hot takes on them. Lucas Silvera, reigning WSL Junior Champion, has signed with Rusty. Currently ranked 43rd on the qualifying series, Lucas is a big, powerful surfer who also excels in solid waves. The WSL Junior Championships have long existed as the benchmark for future greatness, crowning past champs like Andy Irons, Joel Parkinson, Adrian D'Souza, Jordy Smith, among others. So Lucas is definitely one to watch in the upcoming years. There's been another shark attack in Ballina on the northern New South Wales coast. 17-year-old Cooper Allen was hit on the upper thigh while surfing Lighthouse Beach on Monday morning. The shark species is unconfirmed. This marks the fourth serious shark attack at that beach in less than two years. We hope that Cooper makes a full and speedy recovery. Kelly Slater and Michael Phelps are beating the snot out of people in the Ryder Cup. Gold jacket, green jacket, who gives this shit? The Ryder Cup is the European versus U.S. golf-off tournament that takes place every two years and includes myriad formats. Slater and Phelps took on Europeans Martina Navratilova and John Regis in the scramble, besting them in six of nine holes. From Tahiti to Trestles to Hazleton, Kelly's been on a little hot streak, so we'll see if he can keep that up throughout the European leg. Courtney Conlog edged out Tyler Wright to claim the Cash Guys Women's Pro at Guincho Beach in Portugal. I can hear no bell! Get up, you son of a bitch! Mickey loves you! Go, Tommy! I didn't hear no bell! Tyler still has a solid lead, but Courtney's win sends the title race to the upcoming event in Hoscore for the Roxy Pro France. The QS Thunderdome battle continues in Cash Guys, with the QS 10,000 event offering up the biggest points jump for qualifiers and requalifiers ahead of the Vance Triple Crown in Hawaii. As of recording, they're into round 5, although that could be dated by the time you listen to this, and current top tenors on the QS rankings into round 5 include Connor O'Leary, Joanne Daru, Kanoa Igarashi, Ian Gouvea, and Bina Lopes, with my boy Ryan Callanan at number 11, Tomas Hermes at 12, and Jeremy Flores at 18 hovering in there too. So it'll be interesting to see how that event shakes out and how it affects the battle for requalification or qualification heading into 2017. Alright, let's get to the juice. Joining me on The Juice today is one of the seminal artists that has poignantly covered both the sports of surfboarding and skateboarding, as well as the music industry for decades. He is a seaside local, a former professional skateboarder, a trusted confidant of some of the world's most interesting celebrities, and an all-around good human being. Steve Sherman, welcome to Kill the Messenger. Hey, Dave. How you doing, man? Glad to be here. Very, very cool, man. Um, so we're going to try to record this over the phone. This is a KTM first. I am in a car in a coffee shop parking lot in Ventura County. Sure. Where are you? I am in a room in Cardiff, California. And, um, yeah, I'm just sitting in here, just relaxing here, put a little incense on to create the mood. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready to talk, yeah. I, I love it. So, so Sherm, 
Today's juice topic is the idea of being an artist whose profession leads them to cover other artists, and I think this is something that you were uniquely positioned to comment on. Yeah, um, that's pretty much my life. You know, that's kind of what that's what moves me, covering artists. You know, and that's my muse. Awesome. So let's let's go back to the beginning, if you don't mind. You were born in Indianapolis, and then you moved to North County, San Diego. So tell me a little bit about that. What was your family like? What did mom and dad do? Uh, my mom it was, is a registered nurse, and my father is an electronic engineer. And um, in 1974, my dad got transferred from Fairchild Semiconductor to California. So I lived in Indiana until I was 11 years old, just like Pat O'Connell or Ross Williams who both have similar um, backgrounds, their parents, they, they moved out. So um, I got to California, and um, it was a little shock at first. You know, I was just a typical Midwest kid playing sports, playing football and baseball. And, um, yeah, I just got to California, and we stayed in a hotel for a month. And the, and the first thing we got to California is I was looking for a skateboard. We couldn't find skateboards in Indiana. And the first thing we did was went to a toy store, and I found a clay wheel board. So that was like, I was in California. I was ready to roll. What was the, was there like a huge culture shock? I guess we're talking early 70s. So Indianapolis to San Diego, like what was it like for you? And, and did you try to kind of play sports when you got to San Diego? Or were you just like, no, this is a different place. I'm going to start skateboarding. No, it was funny because um, um, before I got to California, I, I was playing like Pop Warner. And uh, I, was a, I was a quarterback. And um, so the word came out, oh, this quarterback coming from Indiana. So I get into Poway, which we, we first lived. And uh, so the co- I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going to play I'm gonna play quarterback. And then as soon as I get out there, it was full daddy ball. The coach's son was the quarterback. So <clears throat> I was um, – so I started playing, like, you know, defense and line and stuff. So, But it was, it was a shock. You know, I would live in Indiana for 11 years, and all of a sudden I'm in California, and it was trippy. I didn't know what to expect, you know. So um, – but it was, um, yeah, it was kind of a major thing for an 11-year-old. But as soon as I got the skateboard, I just kind of just grabbed the skateboard and went, you know, OCD or ACD, ODD, ADD on it and just skateboard all the time. And that's what I was doing. What did your parents think moving from sort of the Midwest to the coast and, and you sort of uh, abandoning sort of traditional sports a little bit to take up skateboarding? Yeah, well, that happened. Actually, I played about, I played about a year and a half of sports in Poway, and then my parents moved the Solana Beach, which is like a half hour to the coast. And um, at that point, I was already skateboarding pretty well. I'd won a couple of contests. And um, I think I think they realized that skateboarding was something they wanted to do. So they were pretty supportive of it. My dad was very supportive. He would um, take me to La Costa on the weekends, and I would race up there. So my dad was really involved, and he got a kick out of me skateboarding and racing. And So I had a lot of support from my parents making the transition from just being a jock a surfer skater <laughs> and so did you pick up surfing around the same time that you picked up skateboarding or did that come like the year and a half later once you moved out yeah to the coast? that came like two years later i was already um when i got to the coast it was in 76 and um in april and i started surfing right away and it was hard <laughs> i mean so, whoa this is not as easy as i thought it was going to be but i really got into the surfing thing and um i was living in pillbox on the beach so right up from pillbox so i was surfing um every day and um, I caught on pretty quick because of my skateboarding. So I was basically surfing and skating all su- all that summer 
and uh, I got kind of proficient at surfing. And then once I got into high school, I got even more into it. Getting into the professional skateboarder aspect of, of the 1970s, like mm. how old were you when this started to take shape, and, and what did it look like in the 70s? Um, well, I was skating at La Costa, and um, I could skate parks, and I could do freestyle, but I got really good at slalom racing, which is a big thing back then. And um, Bobby Piercy and Tommy Ryan and Henry Hester, these guys, these older guys racing, I was like 14, 13 years old racing against 24-year-olds. And um, I was fast. I could I could pretty much keep up with them. So I was actually probably one of the youngest pros at that point. Um, and I was skating with, like, Tony Alva would come up. He was living in Lacadia, and Jay Adams would come up. So – I was skating with some of the best skaters, and Stacy Peralta. So I was skating with some of the best skaters in the world. And at the same time, they all were red-hot surfers. Every guy I skateboarded with was a really good surfer. So for me, it was like, whoa, you've got to be a surfer skater. You know, I, I was a surf-skate-relate. So I just – and so I was really influenced by the whole Dogtown style of, of skating, you know, the surf – the Bertelman School of surf-skate. And um, that was a huge influence to me at that point in my life. All I wanted to do was surf and skateboard. You often see these these fringe sports kind of ramming up against mainstream sports where people are trying to, I guess, sort of um, raw up mainstream sports a little bit or, or mainstream sort of edge sports a little bit. In the 70s at the time, you mentioned you're really good at slalom skateboarding. Were there sort Was there sort of a mentality in the community that this is going to take on sort of like slalom ski racing or something? Was there anything like that at the time? Yeah, I think that was, everyone was thinking, man, this could go, you know, I think everyone had visions of, you know, kind of like what X Games are. Like, if the X Games were going on in the 70s, slalom racing would, I mean, I'm surprised slalom racing is not the X Games now because it's so exciting, it's the same thing. But, yeah, there was an expectation that it could go that direction, you know, and there was even talk of the Olympics and stuff like that and the infancy of the stuff. But in actuality, we were just racing in, in the, on the weekends up at La Costa or sometimes going to Colorado for ARA races. And, um, yeah, there were expectations of that. Everyone thought, hey, wow, we're, we could do this for a living, you know, and it'd be the next sport. You mentioned that a, a lot of their contemporaries were actually sort of older guys um, that you were competing at that level against. Did you have any sort of sponsors or financial supporters at the time, and, and who were some of the peers that you were battling against during this, this period? Um, well, I first got on with Dick Brewer skateboard, which is, uh, and um, Greg Albertini, and then um, and then I, I I came on with Turner Summerski, with Bob Turner. He was making these very unique slalom boards. But my big then all of a sudden I I got hooked up with GNS, with Gordon Smith out of San Diego, and um, Henry Hester was on GNS at the time. Stacy Peralta was on the time, and um, Doug Saladino, Pineapple. So. I kind of, that was like, wow, the big team. And, and I made that team and they used me in ads. So I had a lot, I, it was cool. You know, I, I actually, I'm, I remember when I was 14, I made enough money from doing little things here and there, like $500 so I could buy a moped, which I thought, wow, this is great. You know, so I had a moped, I was skating all over North County. And so I had some support, Kryptonic Wheels helped me out. Um, so I had some, you know, kind of grassroots, you know, help that way. But um, for a young guy, I was I was competing with older guys, and these older guys, Henry Hester, Bob Schulberg, other guys, they were making full blown livings off skateboarding at the time. 
and and was that the goal for you? Is the professional aspiration as far as skateboarding went to replicate the career pathway of those guys you were competing against? And and if so, how far did you get? And and how did that sort of wind down as a life goal? You know, I I thought I was so young, but I think what ended up happening was I just um the Delmar Skate Ranch opened and I worked there, so I started riding pools more, and um, and I was surfing more. So it just kind of went, I kind of melded into that. And then um, actually, and in the middle of the whole thing, I kind of somehow ended up playing freshman football. My, <laughs> in the middle of this, I'm a pro skater, and next thing I know, I'm at football practice, and I'm playing freshman football. Were you playing bizarre. quarterback defense? No, no, I was playing. No, they, they put me on the offensive line because I, I showed up late. My dad kind of took me there. And um, so I ended up playing the offensive line which was boring as hell. And so then after my first year, my, my surf P coach was the varsity coach, and they kept begging me to play. And I'm like, no, wait, screw you guys. You're going to make me play offensive line. I'm not going to do that. It's no fun. So I, I didn't do that. So then, But then in high school, I just started surfing more hardcore. I, got, I was on the surf team, and we were doing NSSA contest with Bud Lamas, and I was doing that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was okay in contests. I did pretty well in some school contests, but – I was just really into surfing, you know. I just enjoyed going to the next level of surfing, you know, riding, you know, bigger waves or, you know, and then we had El Nino years where we were surfing huge swamis. And so I just got into surfing, you know. It just kind of took over skateboarding, really. It almost seems like if you weren't so prodigious as a as a young talent, if you'd come to it later in life, you maybe would have stuck with it. But like most teenagers, it's like you want to try a bunch of different things. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And, um yeah, I was still skateboarding pools and stuff, but then it got then the skateboarding kind of died out, and then um, you know then we started we started surfing more, and then we doubt me and my friends started a, a, a calypso rock band called Barachi Loco. So I was playing Latin percussion. We learned from guys in San Diego how to play Congo, Bongo, and Latin style, and so we did that. So we started playing in this band. Next thing you know, we're, we're just surfing and playing in a band, going down the coast. You know, headlining the Belly Up Tavern on Friday nights, and that became what that was a lifestyle for a while. My early twenties was just playing in that band and surfing. Let's touch on a topic you know a thing or two about in photography. How, how did you get involved in photography? I got involved in photography in seventh grade when my parents moved to Solana Beach, and I started surfing at the same time. Earl Warren Junior High had a black and white photo class, and Ed Landfear was a teacher. It was called you know Photo One Hundred One. So I learned how to develop film and you know and, and print it in a dark room. It was a really cool class. So then my dad, who did photography when he was younger, we put a little dark room in our house, and I was doing that. And then once I got in the ninth grade, the school paper needed a photographer um, at Torrey Pines, the Falconer. So I immediately they took me on right away. I was already up to speed. So then I had my own dark room at school. I was you know we print photos and. Um, I could take my time doing them. I could put all my assignments off to the last minute. It was like, <clears throat> it kind of was the start of what I do in like photojournalism, you know, learning how to do portraits of like teachers and stuff like that. So that was, um, that's kind of how my whole thing started. And, you know, in high school, I had four years of doing black and white photography in high school. At, at the time, because you're so active in surfing and skateboarding and music and football, were were those subjects of yours as a photographer in your high school years too? 
No, not really. I mean, no, I didn't shoot surfing. I was just a peep, just working for the school paper and just doing like, you know, basic assignments. Um, I would shoot stuff around the beach, you know, and like lifestyle stuff. But um, it was just basic. No, it's kind of like I didn't really start to touch on in like the early eighties. Once I was out of high school, I was starting to do. Um, it was Breakout Magazine, and Kevin Kinnear was the editor. And I saw the, I saw the magazine, I'm all, and I said, I just had this vision. I'm all, wow, I want to be the lifestyle guy for surfing. And I, I want to do portraits and stuff that no one else does. For some reason, it just hit me, and it was like a dream. And then I just kind of worked at it to make it come, come to fruition. It was simple as that. <laughs> I go, I want to be involved in this magazine, but I don't want to surf. I don't want to shoot surf photos, really. I want to surf. You mentioned you had influences as a surfer and as a skateboarder, as a young photographer, were there other photographers that you looked up to as well? Yeah, um, definitely the main one was Craig Stesick, um from Skateboarder Magazine and Warren Bolster, uh, who I, I knew Warren from skating Lacoste with him, but um, I'd never really met Stesic. But he had the, the Dogtown Chronicles and Skateboarder, and it was incredible black and white you know, lifestyle portraits and, and gritty streets stuff and um i just became oh my i just became enthralled with the dogtown stories and it really had a big influence on the way i shot my black and white photography and i didn't end up meeting craig until like 1988 way down the line but um craig was a huge influence on me um as far as my vision of what how i saw photography and what i wanted to do you know what i wanted to do to capture he was very urban you know santa monica street venice you know Gritty, and uh, yeah, I, hands down, he's my probably my, been my biggest influence. So early twenties, you're dabbling in a bunch of stuff, including music. In the 1980s, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you started working as the darkroom developer at Transworld Skateboarder. Is that correct? Yeah, that was probably around '86. I started. Um, yeah, I was just I was playing in the band Baracho Loco, and Grant had a job opening at Transworld of an Oceanside for a darkroom tech, which basically meant I would develop black and white films, then print all the photos for the magazine, and we'd send them out. So that was a big opportunity for me. I remember I was painting houses at the time, and I and I was for my friend, and I remember painting a house in La Jolla, and I just go, I do not want to do this anymore. And I, I decided, I go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get back and pursue my photography. So that's, and then Grant hired me, and then I worked my way out of the darkroom. I started shooting for the magazine, and then I started doing ads. And then eventually, they started sending me to, to professional skate contests, and I would cover them, you know, shooting action. But I'd also pay attention to what was going on, on the sidelines and shoot kind of lifestyle stuff, which in the street photo to give the idea. Say, say you're in, a, you know, Chicago. I would walk through Chicago and I'd do like street photos to give to give the viewer an idea of what it's like to be in Chicago. So that was the beginning of learning how to cover an event completely from, from action all the way through the lifestyle. It seems to me that, that as you mentioned, when you got started, like photography was a form of storytelling. It, it seems to me in my experience that today you kind of have specialists. There's writers who tell stories. There's photographers that take photos. There's filmers that, that film. There's not really someone who... I guess the, the young guy or the young the young gal today that's getting into it, they don't look at a mix mash of mediums for storytelling. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, that well, that's what I learned from Craig Stusick. He um, he would 
take these incredible photographs, lifestyle photos, and then he'd write these stories that created this myth or this this urban tale of what it was like to skateboard in the San Fernando Valley or Venice or things like that. So I, you're right. You start, I, I kind of had a deep-rooted experience in storytelling from Craig. He, and, and some of the stories were true, and some of he, you know, he tell in the nos, you know, kind of stress the truth a little bit, but it was entertainment. And um, and Craig was, and then Craig got the filmmaking with, with um, Stacy Peralta, so he kind of went that same direction too. So right, it's, it's definitely storytelling, and I think it's probably kind of a loss a little bit. But then again, I know a lot of great photographers nowadays who are young, who are filmmakers now, who do incredible films, and they tell stories too. So I don't think it's completely lost. Yeah, it almost feels like they're all a little bit compartmentalized, like if they get involved with the magazines or the media companies these days where yeah. people aren't looking for storytellers so much. They're looking for someone to focus on Twitter or they're looking for someone to focus on blogging or they're looking for someone to yeah. focus on photography. But but they're not letting people sort of flow between those mediums, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I, 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 I agree. Um, but then again, if you're really good at it, you're going to do that anyway. You're going to do what you're going to do. But maybe it's, it's a different era, you know, with, with, you know, the media the way it is, social media, Instagram and everything. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's different times, but you kind of have to go with the flow. Like, you know, I enjoy Instagram because it's a visual medium. And, you know, I put a photo out there, four sentences, and, and I share it. That's it, you know. And it tells a little story. But, like, you know, I don't know, other parts like Twitter, I'm not really that, or stuff like that. But um, you have to choose your mediums now. And I do for sure. So, so take me from Transworld Skateboarder into the direction of films with Powell and Peralta. How, how did that come about? Well, as I said, I skated with Stacy um, in the late '80s. I mean, in the late um, '70s. So, and then um, when I, I was working in the dark room, I started dabbling in like, doing some photography for Stacy. He contacted me, and then um, he uh, he called me up one day and said, uh, hey, "Can you come up to Silver Lake? I want to talk to you." He called him the Silver Lake to where the Powell Peralta office was where, and he comes and he goes, okay, Steve, I'm going to leave Powell Peralta. I go, whoa, really? He's like, yeah. He goes, I want you to take my place. I'm all, I go, you're kidding me. And I go, and he goes, I want you to start making doing the film work for Powell. I have one more film project. I want you to film it. So I want you to shoot all the stuff. So he goes, you're going to shoot high eight, super eight, 16 millimeter. And I go, I've never done any of that. So he pulls all the cameras out. In four hours, he taught me how to shoot everything with him. Load the 16. So I walk out of the Silver Lake office with a 16-millimeter camera, all these cameras. I load them in my car, and I call my girlfriend at the time where, you're not going to believe what just happened. I go, I'm, I'm, I'm the new Stacey Peralta. i gotta, I got to make films and do this. So I jumped right in, and I made Celebrity Tropical Fish for Stacey, the main photographer for that. And um, from that point on, then he left, and then I did, and I went to Paul Peralta for two years after that with just me and Craig Stefik doing films. But um, Stacey taught me filmmaking. He taught me how to, you know, how to communicate with film and how to, you know, inter-exit frame and all these little different film techniques, you know, you can use for your camera. So it was like a crash course in filmmaking with Stacey. And um, it was, it was, I mean, I, I still use those skills today that he taught me. Wasn't there a conscious jump for you working as a photojournalist, primarily in the skateboarding world, to your work in the surfing world? And, and if so, when did that happen? Um, it was, um, I think there was definitely a point where I was burned. I, I was just making a lot of skate films, 
for like your foundation skateboards with Todd Swank and I'm I just kinda kinda getting burnt out. I was just shoot, I was just shooting street skating and I, I I was still surfing hardcore all the time and then um I got a chance for, for Xanadu to go to Europe with Brad with uh Brad Gerlach, Peter King and Jeff Baldwin and I was gonna make a film for Xanadu surfboards. So I went there and Aaron Chang was on it. So we shot some photos and went with Mandaka. And I dabbled in just doing lifestyle stuff. And I came back and Nick Carroll, who was working at Surfing Magazine at the time, was, wow, Sherm has something here. So I started just dabbling, doing portraits. And then in, nine, in the summer of 95, he's like, hey, Sherm, he goes, I want you to go to France. And I want you to cover the ASP World Tour in France and do your thing there. Go behind the scenes and just get it, get it and, you know, embed yourself and cover it. I'm like, okay. So he, he called Al Hunt and said, Al, I'm sending Sherman over. He's going to come. And Al's like, what the hell is going on? And so Al, I get there, I see Al. He's like, Al's like, well, I'm not sure what you're doing, Sherman, but come on in, mate. And so he let me in. And I, <laughs> and, 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 and I just went behind the scenes and just started shooting stuff. And I knew Kelly already a little bit from shooting him and, and Sonny I'd met. So I just started doing all this behind the scenes stuff. And uh, that was in, in Hasegore. And uh, Rob ended up winning. So I got some cool photos. And I came back with them with the goods all on film. And I showed them to Nick. And it was groundbreaking. It was behind the scenes. It was intimate. I got all these photos, inside stuff that was really cool. And um, I remember at the end, Al goes, well, Sharon, you only got one complaint. One of the girls said, I had this little plastic camera that did sequences. And I was moving it around. And so I only got one complaint. And so at that point on, that opened up, that opened up the floodgates. Um, but it, was, it ended up being like seven or eight pages in the magazine of me covering the tour, and that was I thought it was pretty groundbreaking. In the mid '90s, in that first experience, was there a lot of media around the surfers, or were you kind of in a unique position? I was in a pretty unique position. No one was no one was hanging in the areas I wanted to go. Like I got a photo of Kelly drawing a um, Blue Hawaii logo on Sony's board in a back room where, you know, you call it, you know, they call it the backstage area now. And I walk in this room, and there's Kelly writing. And at that point, Kelly and Sonny were number one and number two in the world. And I go, this is a beautiful moment, you know. It was, and, and so I shot it, and it ended up being the sp- opening spread. It was very intimate. And I knew when I saw it in Dark Room when I developed that photo, I go, this is what I want to do. I want to capture this. Non, and it was not a photographer in sight. I do remember at one point being in this little, and we're outside, and Kelly, Kelly's goes outside, and all of a sudden there's about 200 French people screaming Kelly, Kelly, and he goes in this little closet in the back room and just hides. And I just went, wow. And I, and I got a photo from it, and uh, and Kelly appreciated it. He it made him feel like what it was like to be at that moment. So comes down to is I just kind of jumped at an opportunity and then no one else was doing it. And then I went to Bell's the next year with Matt George and covered Surfing Magazine and we did even more of a gonzo trip of like, what's it like to go to Bell's and embrace our, and embed ourselves with like the drinking culture and the party and the surfing and everything. And we just documented all this stuff and it was another, even a bigger thing for surfing. So I had two big things under my belt in a couple of years of covering the tour. And that kind of started the whole thing of covering the world tour um, from the inside out. You're famous for having the world's best athletes 
put an incredible amount of trust into you. You had relationships with some of them to begin with, but in those first few years, did you get any blowback? I mean, aside from the random complaint that Al communicated, but was there anyone that, that bristled at having you in those intimate moments? No. You know, I swear to God, there was there was no one that I, you know, there were certain guys who weren't as friendly as others, but no, I, I didn't feel like I couldn't, I didn't feel like, well, he hates me or not. One guy that was very constant was Luke Egan. And I don't think he didn't, he didn't dislike me. He just didn't know what to think of me, I think. But still, me and Luke are buddies now and everything, but he was one guy, one of the only guys I felt like, wow, I don't think he trusts me yet. But besides that, man, I, mean, I, I had Sonny and Kelly and everyone, you know, all these boys that, you know, we're world title guys, you know, and so um, I'm very good socially, <laughs> you know, and then I'd go to the party afterwards and hang out with them, and, you know, so I was hanging at Maurice Cole's house, so the boys knew if I'm down with Maurice Cole, I must be okay, <laughs> and, and and Taylor Steele using me for his video, for his video projects, for photos, that just set me up, so all those guys immediately were my friends. The Momentum Generation guys were all my friends. So there was very few people. I didn't feel any blowback at all. You get that lemmy culture on tour, too, sometimes, where you know people aren't really sure what to do, so they'll follow whatever's working. And and having that relationship with Kelly and Sonny early on and having that great proof of concept in that first work probably encouraged a lot of other guys to be like, oh, Sherm's all right. Like, if, yeah. you know, if I hang with him, I'll get some coverage. Yeah, or just, yeah, or just at least I'll capture them and not make them look bad. Hmm. You know, I think I think one thing that I've, I've, my whole career with these guys is I just really don't I don't want to make them look bad. Now, if you if you're punching a board or something, you know, or throwing a chair, you know that it's not that that's passion. But I don't want to make them look bad visually, you know, or a bad portrait. One time, Andy Andy Irons told me, "I'm sure this is one of the last conversations I have with Andy." And I took a photo of a 99 at the Pipeline Masters underneath the tent with Rabbit. So, Sherm, you shot this photo of me. You know what? And I was so fat. I was out of shape. I, I felt so bad. Man, you made me look so good. And I, 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 I was like, cool. And then I went back and found the photo. And it was just one of these photos where I got lucky with the photo. But he, that's one thing why I got Andy's attention, that I made him look good. So he let me do things. That's, that's how it comes out. Well, I think people, fans in particular, respond to honest moments, right? And and so whether it's a positive or a negative moment, like if it's honest, it's real, and people have an appreciation for the subject. I think I think and I think um, you can't fake real, you know, a real moment, and you can't fake an intimacy and uh, or decisive moment, and that's my whole act is waiting to capture those moments that the average surfer doesn't get to see or, you know, someone that shares. And I get people come all the time and go, oh, man, I love what you do. I can see your photos. And to me, that's the ultimate payback is when an average surfer comes up to me in an airport, you know, in L.A. and goes, hey, you're, you know, you're Sherm, t shirts I love what you do. That photo you took, blah, blah, To me, that's the ultimate, you know, to really, I swear. It's just, you know, it's about sharing with the surf fans. And, you know, as I said, I'm a fan. I'm a fan just like anyone else is. I, 
I, I, I love these guys. I'm a, I love what they do and, and, and their, their passion and how good they are. So, but I don't want to fan out. I, I'm trying just to capture it from a fan standpoint. But, but then acting like I'm not a fan when I'm doing it. So, so you're breaking ground. You've got the portraiture going. You've got this, these intimate moments happening on tour. Let's flash forward 2004 to 2007. You actually become a photo editor for Surfing Magazine. Is that right? Well, yeah. Well, before that, in 99, I became the photo editor of the brand new Transworld Surf. Mm. So I was the first photo editor at Transworld Surf. So me and Chris Cote, we built that up. And we decided, you know, I had already worked with Transworld uh, skateboarding, so I was a natural. So they hired me for an incredible small amount of money to work <laughs> full time and to shoot photos. And um, and so me and Chris Cote built a uh, surf magazine to look like a skate magazine. That was our goal with comedy. So that was, I think, in my career, that was probably the most groundbreaking thing I did. At the same time, I had met Mark, Mark Seldrick from Rolling Stone, and I and I learned about using conceptual portraits, turning someone into a different alternate personality. So I started, you know, I, I turned Corey Lopez into the mud man. You know, I covered him in mud, or I, you know, Taj Burrow as Mad Max. And these were things that were influenced by Mark Sawyer. So at that magazine, we changed things radically. And then... How, um, how did the athletes respond when you kind of came out with these concepts that were obviously for not only to them, but the surfing world. Um, they all had this, this blank look on their face of like, huh? And, but, but they all, like, Corey, I flew to Florida to his house, and, and I go, I go, he goes, what are we going to do? I go, I'm going to turn you into mud man. He's all, dig a hole in your backyard, fill it with water. So then we packed him in mud, right? From head to toe, and all of a sudden he got it. He's all, this is rad. And then, then, then he became mud man. And, and the same thing with Taj Burrow. I flew to Hawaii with the concept of Mad Max, and he kind of got it. And until he got the gear on that we set him up in, then he got it and he embraced it. I think at first, the first thing they'll look at me like, what are you on? You know, like, you want to do what? Because, no, they've never been asked to do that. But I think luckily I had the social skills to kind of slowly bring it up and to do things. And, uh, as I said, those travel days were groundbreaking. I'm I'm really proud of that. That I was able to bring that influence. The work he did, both as a photo editor at Transworld Surf and then later on at Surfing Magazine, did some of the duties of I guess having to be quote unquote editor. Did that did that impact your other projects? You know, your portraiture or your tour life look in, um, or did it complement it? Um, at First, it complimented it. Um, at Transworld, it just opened up my – I was able to – it was like a new thing. So, But going out and traveling and trying to be a photo editor was rough. And, it, and um, at definitely at surfing, about my, my third year into it, I was um, feeling like I was being held back by having to be in the office. And it was just – it was, you know, I had to make a decision. And I talked to Evan Slater about it. And, he, and Evan, uh, he, he knew me really well. And I think I'd done enough. I kind of brought that magazine up from surfing at the point where it was really low to being a player again. And it was ready for the next level of going, you know, of the next, you know, photo letter and stuff. So 
But, you know, I felt like I was I, I wanted to be back on the road and I wanted to keep doing what I do. And sitting in an office for fifty hours a week or more is kind of constraining. I, I, I was good for about three years of doing that per per ton. And then I just get edgy and I and I, I just needed to get back out and do what I do. Let's talk about portraiture. You've named a couple of your subjects and Corey, Taj, Andy Kelly. Who are some of your favorite people to work with, and, and what are your thoughts on portraiture and what it means as a medium in this space? Um, well, first off, um, one of my, some of my favorite people I've shot, obviously, I mean, in the, in the surf world, have obviously been you know Kelly and Andy because, um, and Andy was 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 sweet because I was able to mold him. He was just a kid from Kauai, one of the hottest servers in the world but he really didn't have any edginess to him, you know? And I gave him some some ideas of how to be more rock and roll. And I think I brought the rock and roll of Andy out a little bit, whether I turned him into a gangster with a cigar or as a president and a you know, suit or, you know, all these things that brought him out of his shell. Um, and Kelly, what I love about Kelly, Shin Kelly is that I'll come up with a concept of Kelly and he'll add something to it. Hey, let's, let's try this. And he actually brings something to the table visually of like, hey, let's try this or try that. Um, sometimes it's hard to get Kelly to that point. But once you get him where you, you've got him for an hour and you're doing photos, he is one of the best. He gets into it and, 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 and he gives something back by pre-visualizing of what it could look like. Um, Donovan Frankenrider, I've always had a good... I have great shoots with him, um, but it's just usually in Aki. I've always got, you know, it's, it's usually the guys, my favorite surfers, you know, that I get the best stuff of, you know, because I'm a fan, you know, and, and so it, it's a lot of pressure when you're shooting, when you're shooting one of your, you know, I hate the word idol, but you know, I, these guys I really look up to as people, and um, and same thing like like Mick Fanning, I look up to Mick Fanning as a person. I think Mick Fanning is one of the best people I know. He is one of my he's a close friend, and he he lets me do what I do. But on top of that, if something hit the fan tomorrow for me and my life fell apart, Mick Fanning would probably be the first guy who would call me and go, Are "You okay, Sherm? Do you need something?" And so um, it's just special. Like like when Andy died in Puerto Rico, and that day we're all just walking around the haze, and I walk into a restaurant that night, and Mick sees me. And he walks all the way across the restaurant, comes over, and he just holds me, gives me a big hug, and he goes, goes Sherman, you okay? Because I know this is a tough day for you. And that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff that I appreciate. This when you have when you get these guys who you're shooting with as you know peers, or whatever, and they become friends. And uh, I'm very fortunate in that situation to have friends who I, I get to shoot photos with and create images with. Is there anyone currently on tour, men's or women's, that you haven't shot a portrait of that you'd like to? <laughs> wow, that's a good. No, I'm, I, I pretty much bar it. Is, um, the one guy who I really haven't gone in depth with, which I really want to, is John John. Um, I just haven't really known him that well, but we've had some conversations over this last year where um, in JFA I went over and talked to him. We started talking about his dark room on the North Shore, and He's just been a guy I'm not that close with, but I just respect immensely. And um, I, I don't think I've done my best with him yet. And um, 
but I, I, I'm just, I, I think because we haven't been close enough. So now I'm just kind of getting to know him as a, as a friend. Um, but say, you know, Gabriel, I've shot stuff at him and Adriano and all those guys, you know, these, there's some incredible servers on tour now. And I'm just, I'm just blown away. And Jordy, like Jordy, like Trussell's, I was just so blown away at the level of surfing. And, um, I keep coming back to you. I'm a fan. I love watching these guys surf. But also, it's, get to, it's good. It's always just a trip to get, to get to know them a little better personally and figure out what makes them tick. And, uh, and that comes into portraits. That's part of portraiture. You know, you got to figure out something. How, what am I going to do with this guy? Well, how, how do I want to make him be perceived by his fans? And sometimes it's a lot of pressure. You figure out, well, what the hell am I going to do with this guy, you know? But, um, it all comes out in the wash usually, but you can't bat a thousand. But um, John John's one of them that I think I have not done my best work with him yet. You talked about that itch uh, to get back on the road, Rolling Stone style. Um, you know, being a road warrior, it's never easy in, um, on the family. Uh, you have a beautiful wife and, and two great boys. How have you found the balance? either early on or, or lately um, with having a family and, and doing work on the road? Well, um, I think my wife made a lot of sacrifices for, to make me be able to do what I do. Um, I travel a lot. So um, my family has made a lot of sacrifices for me doing what I do. Um, my, my family is everything to me. My boys and, and, and my wife, Pamela, um, and my boys, they just know dad leaves and dad comes back, you know? And usually at this time of year when the world tile's coming up for a long time in my life, it's usually around September, October, I'm gone. Like this year, the world, the world title is not going to go, not probably going to go down until pipe. It's pretty tight. So I'm not under pressure to go shoot Europe and cover that. And, and my son, Taj, he's playing football. He's playing uh, his, his, friend, his senior year of high school football. So I'm just going to stay around and watch him play football on Fridays. And it's something that um, I love doing. He loves me being there. And so that's one of the things I'm gonna, I, I want to be there for him. But to answer that question, it's been rough on some times having a family. <laughs> it's, uh, as I said, it's, it's all coming out of the wash now. <laughs> but, uh, um, as I said, uh, but I, um, I, the sacrifice Pamela and Taj even have made for, for Daddy to do what he do has been immense. Well, as you mentioned, you know, Taj, your son, he's a superstar linebacker at La Costa Canyon High School. Um, and even when you're talking about yourself growing up, you know, it sounded like your parents were super supportive of whatever you want to do, whether it was traditional sports or surfing or skating or photography. Um, do he and Ethan, Taj and Ethan, do, do they surf and skate and are they into photography as well? Um, Surprisingly, no. Um, my youngest son, Ethan, he serves some boogie boards. He's, he'll, he'll be 13 next month. But um, he's just getting into the ocean. And now like, he came out to, seaside, out to the reef at Seaside last week and called Inside Ledge, and he got the bug. Um, Taj, he just wants to play football. He, that's been his life. He loves football. So... He served when he was younger, but then he just didn't get into it. Ethan plays baseball, basketball, and he buggy boards and surfs. So Ethan's more my little surfer guy. Now, Ethan's buggy boarding, and I'm telling you, I go, 
okay, he says, you want to go, you want to go to Australia in March? You got to get back on your surfboard because I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll take you to Superbank, but I want you to sit, you know, surf, but I give him a hard time. But Ethan wants to go to Australia and, and stay at the Monroe's house, Debbie and Johnny's, you know, he knows about this stuff. So he's got, he's got a little more of the surf fever. And what I do, like he went, he went to the contest with me at um, Trestles and he knew everything going on. He knew the world title race. He was checking all out on his app. He knew everything. And then um, at the end of the day, Jordy came up. Ethan, what's going on, man? Good to see you. And he signed Ethan's hat. So Ethan's a surf fan, too. So it's cool. that. Um, but I think Ethan's going to be my little surfer guy more than Taj. Taj will hopefully go play, play college football, you know, and get an education. So that's where I'm at with my kids at this point. But uh, uh, It's a great place to be. Um, yeah. What what does the future hold for Steve Sherman, and, and where can people find your work right now? Um, the future for me is right now. Um, I'm really my T-shirt brand is T-shirts, and I do um, my, all my imagery on T-shirts, and then we're also doing a we call it art driven brand. We're doing other artists on shirts, and um, that comes at at T-shirts.com. And uh, I did a collab with Kelly Slater this year for a T-shirt for Slater Designs. I did a collab with Vic Fanning, on, um, and so that's on there. But I'm really trying to build up this T-shirt brand. I think in my in my view, I want to make this T-shirt brand work, and and have bring in artists from all over and do T-shirt designs of other artists and stuff. Um, that's my main thing. And then on top of that, I just want to do more intimate work with musicians and um, playing, you know, as I said, I'm really into music. I'm playing music now with my bands, Most Beautiful Beasts and Jordash Wrangler and Brachi Loco. I still play with those guys. Um, my friends right now, um, Lucas Nelson, The Promise of the Real, are Neil Young's band. And they're going to play, they're playing up in Pomona in about two weeks. And I'm going to go with them, hang out with them for a day, get to hang out with Neil and, those are the kind of projects that it's like when I get to hang out with Pearl Jam Eddie Vedder backstage and I get to shoot photos. It's that's the stuff that I've learned in surfing that I'm trying to take to like the music world. Um, it's just, I, sh I played with Lily Miola, Matt Miola's sister at the Ohana music festival like three weeks ago. And Eddie Vedder was there and he was running the whole show and he's running around. And <clears throat> it was, uh, so basically me and Lily and, we got to open for Eddie Vedder, which is absolutely a dream come true. And Eddie was super nice. And Elvis Costello played and X. So music's my passion too. And I love playing music, but also the documenting music. So I want to take what I bring to the surf world into the music world. Um, I've done, you know, I've done music covers for the Blind Boys from Alabama. And that was a Grammy. But I want to go farther into that world, I think. And also still covering the World Surf Tour. I'm still a fan. I'll be in Hawaii at Pipeline. Covering that next year, I'll jump back in and I'm um, in doing that. So um, just trying to expand more a little bit on my photojournalistic outside visions. You know, maybe shooting pro football. I don't know. I've dabbled in that, but I'm I'm looking for opportunities. And sometimes it's hard to branch out into different areas of photography. So um, I'm, I'm looking for an agent. Anyone out there know any good agents in L.A.? Send them my way because I'm, I'm looking to expand and move out. 
But um, right now, I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm, I'm having to make a living doing this. Um, I have a lot of people come back and say, I appreciate what I do. So, um, and influence, too. I think influence is the biggest form of flattery. And from being a photo for these last, you know, 10 years, a lot of surf photographers and photographers come up to me and say, hey, I love what you do. You've, you've influenced me to do that. So, in the end, I think that's what is, is a big thing in life. Well, you know, the World Surf League and the surfing community at large has benefited so much from having a renaissance man like yourself, Sherm, you know, working wow. and doing what you do. And, and one of the personal professional joys for me is is being a fan of people like yourself, you know, back when you're doing the work you're doing at Transworld Surf and the work you're doing at Surfing Magazine. When I was just a kid and I'm a fan and then getting to meet you in person and getting to work with you, it's it's one of the true joys of my job. So on behalf of myself and obviously all the surf fans out there, thank you for doing what you're doing, man, because I think the work is really, really important and I think capturing those moments is truly, truly important. Well, I appreciate that and I... As I said, I don't take it for granted, and I just love what I do, being able to do what I do. And, and I'll say this again. I'm a fan. I'm a pro surf tour fan, So, and I'm a surf fan, and I'm a surfer, and that's why I do what I do. I, as, I, as I said, I mean, you're still a hardcore surfer, and we're all surfers, so we're all part of a tribe. And it doesn't matter if you're making, you know, $4 million a year as it, or if you're just if you're working in a corporate world, we're all still surfers, and that's when you go around the world and you meet a surfer. And you're like, okay, that our tribe is pretty small, so um, we all need to continue being surfers. I love it, Steve Sherman. Thank you so much for coming on Kill the Messenger. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's been a pleasure. On the horizon, we have the upcoming Quicksilver and Roxy Pro France from October 4th through 15th. The Hasselgord Beach Breaks will cap off the European leg for the world's best female surfers and potentially settle the 2016 WSL title bout between current frontrunner Tyler Wright and challenger Courtney Conlog. On the men's side, to borrow a phrase from Sean Doherty, the title race is, quote, clear as mud. Post-Trestles saw a compression at the top between John John Florence, Gabriel Medina, Matt Wilkinson, and Jordy Smith, with Kelly Slater lurking in the number five spot. In addition to the title race, the battle for requalification rages on, with the European leg providing the last opportunities for surfers to salvage their seasons before Hawaii. All events are webcast live on WorldSurfLeague.com and the WSL app. Well, that's it, everyone. Thank you very much for listening. As always, we encourage you to contact me on Instagram at Dave Prodan or on SoundCloud or Facebook or iTunes or LinkedIn or wherever this is posted. I'll do my best to engage and certainly improve these in the episodes to come. Thank you very much again, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs>